Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Um, I don't know if it's because I've had a lot of cute little kids around me lately, but I've been thinking about peekaboo a lot lately. You know, like, like, now you see me, now you don't. Now you see me, now you don't. And, and I kind of see a divine game of peekaboo going on with Jesus and his disciples. Now you see me, now you don't. It's kind of like that lyric we just sang, your hidden glory in creation now revealed. Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, Jesus. And Jesus with his disciples, he's kind of doing like a, you guys are getting it. Now you see me. Ah, and now you don't. <laughs> one step forward, just to take one step back. Now you see me, now you don't. So that's the message title that I'm going with. Last week, we were talking about the disciples' imperfect understanding of Jesus, especially in terms of their kind of spiritually walking in circles. That one step forward, one step back. And more than just a reoccurring idea, for Jesus, this is a key point where he is really working hard on these guys, really trying to get them to understand things about who he is and what his purpose is. Because his cross at Calvary is probably less than two years away at this point. Clock's ticking. We're turning a corner a bit in the Gospel of Mark with this weekend's message. As is illustrated, if you go out and you check out the Bible Project poster that we have out in the Great Hall. This weekend, we're getting into this middle section that's called Act 2, that the Bible Project guys call Act 2. Starting today, we're honing in on the question. It, it may be hard to read here, so I'll share it with you. Who is Jesus really? Or as it says, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does that mean? In we go, chapter 8, verse 22. And they, Jesus and all his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. That's the part we play with loved ones. Bring them to Jesus and beg him to do what he does. That's the part we play. Bring and beg. Bring people to Jesus and beg Jesus to do what he does. Undoubtedly, there was some conversation, some storytelling that this blind man's friend, friends were trying to do to get him to be willing to come with them to see Jesus. Undoubtedly, they were telling him, all about all the signs and wonders that legitimized his, his claims and his teaching, saying, you gotta come with us to see this man, Jesus. And as soon as they had the opportunity, 
Maybe as soon as their, their friend finally relented, they played their part. Bring your friend to Jesus and then beg Jesus to do what he does. Some of us, myself included are here, are doing that same thing with loved ones right now. There are loved ones that we desperately need to know Jesus. And right here, we encounter our role. What's our role in that? Bring them to Jesus. By, by telling them about your faith, by telling them about your vision and your, your passion and, and what church and connections and all that kind of stuff means to you, bring them to Jesus and then beg Jesus to do what he does. That's the role that we play. And for those of us that, like myself, have loved ones that we very dearly want to bring to Jesus and beg him to do what he does, we're going to have that time here today to beg Jesus for our loved ones. For now, let's keep going. Verse 23. And he, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, to his home, saying, do not even enter village. Huh. The spitting on his eyes thing, that's a little weird. <laughs> Taking him outside of the village to do this miracle, that's a little weird. Telling him to not re-enter the village, that's a little weird. And what's the deal with the two-stage miracle? Did the first attempt, like, not take? <laughs> I love it when God does weird stuff that kind of makes us squint our eyes and cock our head a little bit and go, huh? It keeps us leaning into him as it did with the disciples. As Pastor Brent said a couple of weeks ago, when the Bible has something weird, usually something important's going on. It makes us lean in a little bit more. The fact that Jesus questioned the status of the man's vision shows us he knew there was something going on that his healing was gonna be done in stages. <laughs> I think it's a safe bet that Jesus didn't accidentally foul this pitch off. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, the blind man's two-stage healing might actually be considered to be an enacted parable, an acted out parable, analogous to the disciples' lack of understanding leading up to this passage and, and beyond this passage. They see Jesus like this blind man saw figures. You see them, but not clearly, not completely. And even if they see that Jesus is the Messiah, do they really understand what that means? Do they really understand that being the Messiah means he is the suffering servant? They see Jesus. Maybe they even see him as the correct figure, but do they see him clearly? Like I said at the beginning, Jesus is big time working on these guys. 
really trying to labor to get them to understand some really hard things about him. As we talked about, so that they can see him clearly. This week, last week with the disciples completely missing the mark with the feeding of the 4,000, and next week, it may all be a big lead up to what can be called the question of Mark. We've actually encountered it once before. After Jesus had calmed the storm, it was the disciples asking the question of Mark, which is, who then is this? And they were speechless in the boat. And then next week, Jesus is gonna return that question. Who do you say that I am? That's the question of Mark and the question for us. And perhaps all the work Jesus is doing with these disciples from the feeding of the masses to this enacted parable into next week is all setting the scene for the question of Mark that we're gonna encounter next week. Who do you say that I am? And even then we're gonna find that the correct answer is actually still left incomplete. So that's next week, this is this week. For obvious reasons, I love what we call ministry wind days. Ministry wind days are the days where, where something's going on and you just go, thank you, Lord, you produced fruit from what we came to offer. And I really don't like ministry bumps and bruises days. <laughs> I like ministry wind days. Ministry wind days are like reports coming back from yesterday's serve day. And our missions teams from Taos and DC and the Dominican Republic and our two families care teams helping families in this region. Ministry winds are emails that I get back from some of the men that have finished our revelation study and, and they're sending me emails saying, I filter things differently now in light of that. Current events my own faith, my own temptation and sin, I see it differently now. That's a ministry win. Ministry wins are the many of you that, that welcomed the Helmuth family so warmly last week as Ashley's coming into this church family in a new season for them. Those are ministry wins. We're about to have an unblushing of ministry wins where all Timberline campuses participate in the Water Valley baptisms that you heard about this Friday at 6 p.m. Join the party. Big celebration of ministry wins. I love ministry wins. And I really don't like ministry bumps and bruises. In this season, it's a, it's a hard crash course in discipleship that these disciples are going through right now. This is not a very flourishing season for them. I see a lot more ministry bumps and bruises than ministry wins for them. And it's gotta be frustrating for them. In fact, I'd even go so far to say, I wonder if the disciples are possibly as frustrated with their own lack of understanding as Jesus seems to be. I think they can tell they're missing it. They're not getting it. So let's take it easy on them. <laughs> this was no mere religious figure that they were following. They had history behind them of big time biblical figures, heroes of the faith, 
Moses and Elijah and all these kind of people that, and I am sure they got in their minds what following a figure like that would be like. And somehow following Jesus is just coming across as different. I wonder if they're a little frustrated with maybe themselves, maybe with Jesus, and what did you actually mean when you said, come follow me, because this isn't living up to my expectations. But Jesus was different. Following Jesus was unprecedented and a vast mystery. And these guys, these disciples, they are in the middle of being works in progress. God is nowhere near done working and refining them. So let's take it easy on them and their lack of understanding. And speaking about a lack of understanding, what's with the two-stage healing? Jesus can clearly heal people with just a command, as we saw back in Mark chapter 5, verses 41 through 42, and we will see in Mark chapter 10, verse 52. Jesus can heal with just a command. So what's the deal with a two-stage healing? Well, earlier I suggested that it could be an enacted parable, analogous and part of a, a larger point that he's making. But while that could be a part of it, the simple truth is we don't know. Not for certain. It's a mystery. There is an undeniable, unavoidable aspect of the mystery of our faith. You and I are never going to completely, comprehensively understand the works of God, why he does what he does, when he shows up, his timing, or why he's not doing what we think he ought to. There is an undeniable, unavoidable mystery to our faith. How do you do with the mystery of faith? How do you do with the not only unanswered questions of faith, but I may even go so far to say unanswerable questions of faith. Does that, does that make you squirm a little bit, not knowing all the answers, not knowing why God is doing a certain thing or why God isn't doing a certain thing? For some of us, the unknown makes us squirm about God, makes us doubt. For others of us, it makes the whole reality of faith more beautiful. Because what adventure, what fun, what beauty or sovereignty would God Almighty really have if everything he does is in the scope of my understanding? My wife does things that are way beyond my understanding. This is God that we're talking about. Of course, he's gonna do things that are beyond my understanding and that doesn't make him doubtable. It makes him beautiful. It makes him sovereign. So I want to be a part of that, that second crowd, that latter crowd that says, the mysteries of faith endear me to God more because it shows me when I don't know the answer and I'm not going to always know the answer, I can trust the one who does. So that's why the, the saliva thing here and also the, the two-part miracles, I can, I can kind of guess at what maybe Jesus was doing there, but I'm okay not knowing, at least for now. Now for the bigger question, though. Who was Jesus really? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? 
that's a question he did not intend to leave a mystery. Jesus very carefully and very vigilantly protected the narratives around his identity and his purpose. This is scratching the surface on something we introduced all the way back at near the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that's kind of mysteriously termed the messianic secret. This is an unusual phenomenon that's just found in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is seemingly trying to hide his identity, telling demons and telling people when they say, I know who you are, I know what you're about, and he says, tell no one. He's doing it here with this story again, telling this guy, I'm gonna take you outside of the village in order to heal you, and then after I do this miracle in your life and restore your sight, I don't want you to go back into the village. Why in the world would Jesus do that? It's the messianic secret. It's part of what's happening here that he's kind of doing this divine quality control of the narrative around him. I'm not just doing something and then allowing everybody to kind of form their own interpretations of who I am and what I'm doing. So right now, while there's imperfect understanding about who I am and what I'm doing, and we've already said the disciples, they see him, but then they don't. They see him, but then they don't. As long as there is still that gap in who I am and what I'm about, He's crafting and containing the whole narrative about who he is. And the why shouldn't be so hard for us to discern here. Why would Jesus be so careful about protecting the narrative? He is laser focused right now in this season of ministry on what? His disciples. And trying to get them to see some really kind of life-changing, perspective-changing things about him. And they're struggling with that a bit. And so what does Jesus do when his disciples are found struggling with the things that he's trying to teach them? Do you see Jesus getting fed up and going, I'm gonna go recruit another team. <laughs> I'm over with these blockheads. Do you see him lashing out? No, he leans in more to them. He just teaches them another lesson. Let me teach it a different way. Let's, let's maybe kind of show you what this looks like with this man's partial sight. He leans even more. After healing the man and sending him back home, Jesus was setting up space. He was kind of clearing the schedule, clearing off the whiteboard, blank slate here, to be uninterrupted in the next encounter he's gonna have with his disciples. Because what happens next, we've already said it, is the question of Mark. All these passages are connected here. From feeding the masses to quietly healing the man to ultimately next week, the return of the big question he has for them. It's all connected so that even if right now they're, they're just seeing things, but, but not clearly, he's leaning into them. He's reinvesting in them. He's trying something new. That they would see him as Messiah on his terms and what that means to him. Yes, he's the storm calmer, demon cleanser, blind healing Messiah, but maybe they're just seeing a bit of that right now. And Jesus's understanding of what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah is gonna clash with their answer to that question. He had a lot of work to do in these guys, but don't worry. The rest of the New Testament tells us slowly 
but surely these guys got it. And we can too. And because it's just so pivotal, and in case some of you are gonna miss next week, I can't keep alluding to the big thing that's gonna happen next week and not talk about it a bit. I know it's next week, but I just can't wait because we have to ensure that all these passages, we understand that they're, they're connected. They're not just episodes, they're all connected. Within this new season, in what the, the Bible Project guys call Act 2, Jesus will now turn to predicting his death for his disciples three times. Chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, and chapter 10, verses 32 through 33, or sorry, 33 through 34. This is where he begins to lay out the most mind-boggling piece of what it means that he's the Messiah. Even as all the popularity and influence swells, it's not gonna end like you guys think it will. It's not gonna lead to salvation like you think it will. There's a lot more blood, sweat, and tears in the future of this mission than there are victory parties. And the disciples repeatedly struggle with that, repeatedly see imperfectly. And we take it easy on them because we do too. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, we see dimly now there will come a time where it is perfected. Now, I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have always been fully known. Keep that in mind, that we see things imperfectly, would you? Because I want you to keep a humble, maybe even loose grip on the confidence that you and I can develop that we are seeing things with 100% clarity. Because next, with all this centering around sight and seeing things clearly, I want us as a church here and now to just look around a bit. I wanna launch off from the healing of the blind man and, and Jesus's pursuit of his disciples and, and growing in their understanding. And I want us to look around. How do we make sense of the world around us? Headlines, nations, politics, culture, values, sexuality, economy, etc. How do we know that our vision is clear? Look around. Are we seeing things clearly? Well, I am, pastor. <laughs> How do we know? How do we know that we're seeing things clearly based on whose definition? We have trusted voices, podcasts, news channels, entertainment, and they all may be fine. But I'm a shepherd, and I have a job, a responsibility to say that if any of them turns us back and sours the taste of God's word for us, it is a piece of the enemy's agenda. It's enemy propaganda. Have you ever been listening or watching or reading something and at some point, usually it's, it's pretty early on, but not always, at some point it's just not passing the smell test? Like at some point, maybe it's the tone or the imagery 
or vulgarity and, and something just smells off. I believe that there can be so much of that around us. And I want us to be people that are constantly praying and asking God for the spiritual discernment to see things, not just agreeing with voices that we trust, in echo chambers, just caught, listening and interacting with just people that we agree with. I want us to be people that are constantly in humility, asking the question first, am I seeing this clearly? Am I seeing everything God wants me to see in this? When you're caught in that echo chamber, just hearing and repeating voices and perspectives that you agree with, where's humility to listen? To be corrected, to hear the whisper of the spirit. Every single one of us has to boil down values and clear sight based on something. You may pick certain voices or podcasts, or movements, and in love, God has given each and every one of us the free choice in what we're gonna choose to listen to. So as for me and my house, it's gonna be God's timeless revelation that this is where I start. This is where I lean into, what are you saying? What are you trying to instill in me? And from there, that's the filter through which I see the world. God's word is gonna be an anchor for my values and how I see the world. It's like an anchored decision that Pastor Jeff talked about a couple of weeks back. But whose understanding or interpretation of God's word? Have you ever heard that? When somebody says something like, I stand firmly on the Bible, and then the response comes back, well, whose interpretation of the Bible? People often ask this like there are different Bible versions or translations that drastically alter core, timeless biblical values. Most of the time in actuality, I think they're insinuating that the teachings of the Bible either can be trusted or can't instead of actually dealing with differences in interpretations. Kind of like because there are different interpretations on some matters of the Bible, it's all up to interpretation. It's all subjective. And if our foundation upon the timeless truths that God gives us through his word is not to be trusted and is not to be the strong core foundation that we have, then like I said before, it's a part of the enemy's agenda, eroding our confidence in the timeless truths of God's word. But let me get back to that question because I do think it's actually a good one if it's asked with all integrity and sincerity. Whose understanding or interpretation of God's word are we supposed to rely on? There's important work to do. What does this say to me? What is this intending on saying? That's, that's important work based on whose interpretation? My answer would be Jesus's. Let's start there and then work our way through the rest of it. That's why we're right here in the middle of a series in the gospel of Mark. That's why most people that are new to faith or returning to faith are usually guided your first book to read 
is one of the Gospels. Read the Gospels because we want you to look at Jesus first. Encounter Jesus first. Listen to his understanding of his purpose and his mission and then interpret the rest of scripture from there. Because so far, we're, we're into eight chapters of Mark, and if you've journeyed with us, Jesus is pretty clear on the things that he's teaching, right? He doesn't just leave them up for interpretation. This is the whole point of the messianic secret that he's doing, that I'm controlling the narrative about who I am and what I mean. And we constantly are getting his interpretations of his teachings. I don't think he's leaving a lot of room for alternate interpretations about who he is and what his purpose is and what he means. That's why he is so intentional in crafting and controlling the narratives around him. He's not going to explain everything to us. He doesn't have to. He's just going to explain the things that he most needs us to know. He's pretty clear on those things so that we can be clear. And as a special point of application for you and I in the life of the church, you don't have to go this alone or start all the way back at the beginning. If you're someone that's trying to allow God's word to serve as your foundation, your filter by which you're seeing things, you don't have to go that alone. That's one of the purposes when Linda was so passionate in talking about connections and connecting to one another. It's something we will never stop and never tire of, connecting believers to one another as we unpack what is this saying and what does it mean for my life? You don't have to answer that question, how do I make the Bible a foundation for my worldview? You don't have to do that alone. You can do it, you should do it with one another in connections, in studies. And there's way more that you can, I can, that we can effectively strive to, to allowing God's word to be our foundation. There's, there's one more way that we can really allow that to take root in us. And it's through fervent and authentic prayer that the Holy Spirit would enlighten my understanding. That's the unique job that the Holy Spirit plays. Jesus taught the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, John 14. And then he continued, John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. God's not just waiting for us to somehow stumble across his truth. If we can fervently and authentically pray, Holy Spirit, help me understand what you want to say to me. That's a prayer that the Holy Spirit answers every time. So we don't have to go it alone, and we don't have to do it by sheer willpower. We can just, with a humble heart, say, God, give me your worldview. God, give me your view on our nation, on my marriage, on my finances, on my schedule. For the heart that humbly holds the conviction that, that maybe, just maybe, you're not seeing everything with 100% clarity, fervently pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten all of this. And he will. He will clarify things for you. That's what he does. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 again. 
we see dimly now. But there will come a time where all of that is perfected. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully. Even as I have always been fully known. Maybe a part of seeing things clearly, maybe... Maybe a part of the reason we're not seeing things clearly is we're only listening to voices we agree with. Maybe part of why we're not seeing things clearly is we're not engaging enough with God's word. Maybe it's just a part of the mystery that we need to sit with, with him. I can only imagine this is how the disciples, even in all their struggles, would one day learn to preach to their souls. Kind of echoing that Hebrews 13, 12 passage, I see things dimly, imperfect. I'm a work in progress. But more and more and more, I'm seeing Jesus and his purpose more clearly. All leading up to a point of perfection, a point of eternal and everlasting perfection from the one who has always fully known me. We want to see Jesus for all that he really is. And let him take us from there. If you've never done that, or if you're somebody that, that a loved one has somehow brought to church or brought to Jesus or encountered Jesus for the first time, I invite you to pray a very, very simple gospel prayer. And it's simply this. Jesus I surrender as much as I understand about myself to as much as I understand about you. That's a beautiful, life-changing, soul-posture-changing prayer. He'll guide you. And he'll surround you with the church, people of the church, pastors of the church, ministries of the church, and we'll guide you. Those are the types of decisions we're celebrating this Friday. That's why it's such a big ministry win party. Hey, as the worship team comes back up, I want us to take some time and circle all the way back to something we talked about at the very beginning. That the job of believers with loved ones is to bring them to Jesus and then beg him to touch them. And I know way too many of us are in the same boat that I am, that there are names that immediately come to mind when you're thinking about people that, man, I desperately need them to know Jesus. I want us to have some space right now. Whether you want to say the name, whisper the name, or think through that person in your relationship with them, I want us to have some space where we bring people before the Lord in our minds and in our prayers, and we beg Jesus, do what only you can do. And I know for some of us, this is raw. And that's why after this service, we're gonna have the prayer team, they're gonna be up here, and, and we would love for you to linger a little bit. We would love for you to linger and allow those people to come alongside of you in begging Jesus to pray for people. Because what if this day, this opportunity, us bringing people before the Lord and, and begging God to do his thing. What if something changes? That's an eternal opportunity we have. So we're just gonna have some space here. I have people in my life, their names are coming to my heart and I just wanna have space where I bring them before the Lord. And I 
beg him to do his thing. Let's have some space. You do it too. raise up these names from our souls and we proclaim, God, do what only you can do. Save them, God. Touch them. I have brought them before you and I want you to change their life. Maybe today, maybe this week, give them something that makes them pivot in their soul. You are a miracle worker, just like these friends that brought their blind friend before you. They knew that you're capable of a miracle. So here we are 2,000 years later knowing for sure that you are capable of reaching the blind, healing and finding the lost, breaking the bonds of sin and skepticism and doubt and infusing your love and your grace, Jesus. I pray that as those names or on our hearts, maybe even heavy on our hearts, you would allow us to linger here in these services. Join with the prayer team and pray more and more over these people in our lives. That's our job. Bring them before you and beg you to do your thing. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities and much more, visit timberlinechurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.